Hello, my name is Robert Sram, your host today on Future Now Radio with co-host Rahin Fatima and our special guest is Michael Strong from the US. At Future Now Radio, we invite active visionaries that are in the process of creating a collaborative world radio platform to explore concepts and understandings around new systems of sustainability and post-scarcity. Future Now Radio is a free station bypassing the mainstream media by offering programs and inspiring original and regenerating perspectives to address world problems and offer positive grassroots and meta-level solutions. I will share a bit about Michael. Michael is the founder of the SocraticExperience.com, a secondary school for parents seeking a warm, motivating and high performance virtual educational experience for their children, specializing in creative, intellectual and entrepreneurial students whose needs are not being met by conventional schools. He is also founder of the Academy of Thought and Industry. That's an innovative Montessori aligned high school with campuses in San Francisco, New York, Austin and St. Louis. Michael, you're doing a lot of stuff, so I will mention it shortly before we can flow into the discussions, because you have roles like uh, you're the founder of Beside the Socratic experience, you're the co-founder of Conscious Capitalism. You're the CEO and Chief Visionary Officer of Radical Social Entrepreneurs. And you're on the advisory boards of the Moorfield Story Institute, the Trilink Global and the Lifeboat Foundation. And you're also a writer, you're an author of a, a few books. One of them is The Habit of Thought from Socratic Seminars to Socratic practice, and you're the lead author of Be the Solution, How Entrepreneurs and Conscious Capitalists Can Solve All the World's Problems. And you're a co-author here with uh, John Mackey, Mohammed Yunus, Ananda de Soto and others. Michael, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, Robert. Great to be here, Raheem. And Raheem, uh, thanks for joining. And Lovely to have you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's lovely to be here. It's just, the thing is, is that I, because I meet with Michael a lot for class and for mentor meetings, he's my mentor. So the thing there is, is just, it's that maybe I don't focus a lot on what he does because it's usually talking about me or about class. And we, though I have interviewed him, but our focus was the Socratic experience. So now that I hear this introduction, I'm like, whoa. I hang out with cool people, so it's definitely good to hear it. Well, we of course know that you've hung out with the Dalai Lama, so I'm small potatoes, given the cool people you hang out with, Raheem. Ah, uh, come on. It's actually been exactly a year because it was 12th of April, 2021, and it's the 12th of April, 2022, so I'm celebrating a year since I've talked with him, but I've met amazing people uh, all times of my life, and you're definitely one of them, so... So happy to have you on. Thank you. Wonderful. I'm honored to be here with you both. Michael, on your LinkedIn profile, it says, and this is a quote by Anders Mikkelsen, Michael Strong is the real deal. 
He is a fantastic leader and educator. He has a wealth of insights and knowledge. I wish I'd gone to one of his schools. <laughs> I highly recommend anyone working with him if given the opportunity. So that's from Anders and Malcolm Roberts. He says about you, Michael's passion is clear thinking and experience around superior educations are outstanding. His diverse experience and proven success combined with his heartfelt desire to take students to a broader and deeper education are matched by his passion for ending today's destructive teen culture. Michael wants to make the world a far better place for all and has the ability and commitment to do so. So how do you feel about these well, comments. <laughs> they're very wonderful. I, I guess I'll start by saying I'm a very unusual educator because I love learning and I hate school. And that's not, you're not normally supposed to say that. But for me personally, conventional, I went to in the United States, good public schools, but they were, it was some of the most boring and cruel years of my life. As an adult, I have never been as bored as I was in school. And sometimes kids were mean. As an adult, if somebody's a jerk, I don't hang out with them. And so I find life as an adult, you know, I am very entrepreneurial. I'm involved in dozens of cool projects with the most wonderful people all over the world. And it's super exciting and fun. And so I want to share the kind of entrepreneurial creative life that so many people are living with young people. And I don't see any reason why they have to um, be in an environment that's boring and often cruel if they could be leading creative, entrepreneurial, um, thoughtful lives from the ages of 10, 11, 12, or whatever, or younger. Wonderful. I wonder, Ayin, you want to uh, respond to it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Michael because, um, yeah, I think it's just the environment of a Socratic experience is very different where ideas can bloom and you can just share them with teachers, uh, well, not teachers' guides, I'd say. So it's, it's very interesting. But, okay, so I have a question, and it's, it's something that I have actually thought about recently. It's, okay, so the thing is, is that Michael shared with me the fact that he was a good student, right? That, you know, you were a good student. I mean, we got into Harvard. Right. Right. So um, that means that you were an amazing student. And so I know some people that were like, their grades were off, like off the charts. And so typically those friends of mine, they'd enjoy school because it was an environment that helped them be good students, probably not learn as much, but they were, they, there was some learning involved for sure. So how do you think even being that, very good student, you'd still say that they were some of the most cool years of their life? No, I mean, good question. Part of it is I regard most schools, and again, there are lots of exceptions. I, I always, you know, realize there are wonderful teachers and classrooms all over the world. But a lot of, for me, a lot of school was what I call memorize and forget tests. And so, you know, the night before the test, I would memorize everything I needed to do. I would go get my A on the test, spitting it back out, and, you know, then my ego would feel good. I think a lot of good students who like school, it's very gratifying to the ego. But for instance, in history, I didn't really care much about history. I'd get my A's and walk out. But as an adult, I read a lot of history. I think about history a lot. I'm, you know, all of the different perspectives and conflicts. 
Um, you know, Raheen, you and I have talked just a little tiny bit about the partition, but you know, that whole story, oh my gosh, how huge, how tragic, how complex, and it's having impacts in Pakistan and India today. And if I just memorize a set of facts, none of that richness comes through. So I think that those of us who love the world of ideas, we're constantly thinking, you know, going back to your initial um, introduction, Robert, we're thinking, how do we make the world a better place? What's wrong? How do we fix it? You know, how do we deal with the complexity? And our minds are very active. And that active mind in service of making a difference is, I think, one of the most powerful ways to live. And yet, again, I feel as if traditional schooling rarely gives children um, access to that world. Some, some do because of their parents or a particular teacher. Again, there are exceptions. But most students are not getting the sense of the world is a complex place with many challenges to be solved. How do I live the best life I can uh, in service of solving these problems? Kids, that's not, you know, they're just, how do I get the grade on the test? And when, is, when, when do I see my friends? You know, that's the horizon of most kids. And it's just not as rich as life should be. Yeah, wonderful. Yep, go on, Lorraine. Yeah, no, I was, I was just going to say it's, it's, it's very nice. And because for the longest time, I did get those straight A's. And it is definitely right up for the ego. Be like, oh, yeah, 20 out of 20. Got it. So it's definitely it feels very good. But now, even if I do not get like the full A plus and the whole all, all of that and Socratic experience, it probably feels way better because I know I can see my pro progress. And yeah, so I think it probably feels better. It does. And, and of course, my goal, Raheen, is to help you to think about the world in different ways. You know, Raheen, for people that know, Raheen has hundreds of interviews. She really is a rock star celebrity at the age of, are you still 14 or did you turn 15? Yeah, no, I'm 14. Okay, still 14. Um, and, you know, there's still a sense of direction. What does one use with one's, what does one do with one's talents? And, you know, I, I think, you know, intellectual sophistication is not for its own sake, but things like legal systems, legal systems are very complicated, or learning to write well. Um, I think of writing as a superpower. And in order to write well, one needs to understand complex ideas. And so I see the project as not teaching something to Raheem so she gets a grade, good or bad. It's how do we develop, the way I talk about it is we educators and parents should be working to discover and develop every child's genius. And I think every child is a genius and it's how can we help them manifest that genius? And for some it might be writing, for some it might be law, for some it might be video production or animation or software development. You know, there are countless paths, but I want students to understand who they are and and what they can do in the world. And it's a long process, not overnight. And then also how to develop themselves uh, so that they can be the most happy, impactful, meaning-driven person they can possibly be. Is it a fun process? Yeah, it definitely is a fun process. I mean, there's definitely stuff. I mean, like sometimes in STEM, I may not be the most interested in what we're doing. But then there's always moments like, oh, my God, we're making a board game like we're doing. Uh, so that's what I was doing before I came to this podcast was like we're, we were designing a board game. And it's interesting how we're learning about rules and how people understand rules. And so because our game also involves psychology, we're understanding why are people even competitive. So um, 
yeah, it's, it's very interesting to how we learn things at the Socratic experience. And I don't, yeah, it's just when our quarterly reports come in or our semester reports do, I would not usually be the most curious about my grades anymore because that's what I used to do. But I'm not because I would rather read the feedback and what my guide has to say uh, about how I am in class, how I'm performing. So I think, and also about the progress. So it has got definitely been very much more about the feedback and how I am, not the way. So I am kind of still. No, thank you. I want to connect it, Robert, again to some earlier themes. Um, you know, a hypothesis I have about the world is that a lot of the harms the world are related to ego and insecurity. And that insofar as people are driven by ego and insecurity, then they often hurt others in many ways. They're oblivious to others in many ways. You know, just in terms of status consumption, a lot of people uh, are into buying things in order to make themselves feel good because they do not have the kind of inner peace they need. And I see going from the external validation of grades or the external validation of praise to who am I and what am I here to do and what am I trying to achieve and how do I become a better person as gradually transitioning from a world where perhaps most people are driven by ego and status to a world where people are driven more by internal motivation um, to achieve some good that they've thought carefully about and developing satisfaction from our own agency and developing as a human being and having a positive impact. Does that make sense to you, Raheem? Yeah, 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 that does for sure. And I think sometimes it's just because, I mean, at the Socratic experience, we have projects to kind of apply our learnings for the for what, you know, the whole time in the quarter for. So I think definitely I was able to see my own progress. I did not need grades to tell me that. My first paper and my latest paper were very, very different in terms of how they were written, how well they were written, and um, and yeah, a couple more things involved. So I, I think a lot of times you can just tell your progress by yourself and you can see where you've come and you don't need grades for that. But if you do have some validation and praise, definitely helps for sure. But um, I don't think so. You should be depending on that to feel good about where you're from and what you're doing. I want to just kind of tether this a little bit because um, one thing that I think we want to do is there are systems out there that are not going away overnight. So for instance, many in the United States and I think elsewhere in the world, many education systems become more conventional because of anxiety over college admissions, that the, uh, there's tremendous pressure to try to get into the college of one's choice. In the US, it's again, very ego-driven, often by, on behalf of parents. But um, you know, it turns out that having high-level skills, I think, is valuable. So there's a lot of talk in the US about the SAT, but part of it is the SAT verbal is a high-level reading test. And I am a, a great believer in learning to read well, to learn to read sophisticated material well and easily. And so certainly, you know, part of what we give our students, and Raheem can speak to this, is our very difficult readings. Um, and it's not difficulty for difficult sake, I think. In, in order to analyze the world and understand the world, we want you to be able to read anything and make sense out of anything. And then, you know, likewise, with respect to math, I think it is useful to have certain level of mastery of fluency 
in some kinds of mathematics. So one can read just in the world of uh, you know, data. So one can read data-driven arguments from an informed perspective and not kind of being a passive recipient. So while we certainly emphasize student agency and um, human flourishing, I also see to that extent high-level academic skills in reading, writing, mathematics as incredibly useful. So I don't necessarily see them as attention. It's more, how do we develop the high-level reading, writing, and math? You want to speak to the difficulty of reading? Do you like the hard readings, Raheen? Do you dislike them? Does it vary? Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna, I was just gonna speak to that. It's okay. So I did not read a lot when I first came to the Socratic experience, and I'm like, oh my god, the reading part of it. And so, so when I started, when I joined Michael's class that I take an elective is politics, philosophy, and economics, so PPE, and I take that, and then also my uh, humanities. So we read a lot of stuff. Um, and, you know, it is stuff that is Aristotle and then also parts of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. So we read a lot of stuff that when you just read a little bit and you go like, what? Well, sorry, I kind of am confused. I'm going to read that over again. But I think I have learned how to read stuff over, how to have an, a little bit of understanding of my own. But when we do uh jump jump into talking about it it definitely clarifies a lot of you know my doubts and stuff and i am that one person in class in the middle of the class i go like wait what does that mean so um yeah it's definitely i mean i have learned to ask questions and to also sometimes be okay with the fact that some people may understand the reading um different than you do may have different interpretations of it and sometimes that could be really off with what you think but I think that's just the fun of it. And the Socratic experience, see, I wanted to go to high school and even go to high school now because I want to go to college. So for me, yes, I do need to be, you know, in a certain point of math um, and at reading that I do give, you know, I do have like good SAT scores so I can get into a good college. But see, that's just the way that I think. A lot of my friends, well, most of my friends, they're, they they don't think that way. Maybe they're not that college-oriented, if that even makes sense. But I think that's what I like about it, is that it's not something that's enforced. If you want to take it, the SAT is sure. If you don't want to take it, that's all right, too. Um, and it's not forced. And the way that you're not taught, but the way this, the class environment is, it's not that, all oh, we're doing we're doing all of this for college, and then we're doing all of college for a good job so that's what I like just take some freedom to what you think what you want to do is always present so I, I want to lean in a little bit to the role of the dialogue so of course asking questions dialogue most of our classes are conversation most of the time and that's one of the ways in which we get engagement on a difficult reading often if there's something we read that's very difficult any one student doesn't understand it on their own and we don't expect them to understand or master it on their own. But I think what we find is that when people do come in with, as Raheen says, very different readings, let's say you discover that human beings view the world in just amazingly different ways, even the same sentence, the same black and white set of words on a page, people can understand radically different ways. But by means of talking through how we interpret different texts, then we start to develop a whole a more holistic understanding. Even if we disagree with a particular interpretation, it helps us clarify our own interpretation. It helps us to understand, oh, 
that's not my view, but at least this is, this is something that I think of. I would add that one thing I think we do well is often we have, we do have people with very different um, worldviews at the school. You know, we've got extremely progressive students from San Francisco and we've got students from Texas who give lessons on gun safety. You know? um, we've got families from Pakistan and Iraq and Panama and Mexico, uh, tutors from Eswatini and Turkey and in Mexico. So it's very much kind of a global community of people thinking and discussing and disagreeing about things. And then finally, the text does tether the conversation. So, you know, if it's just uh, on an issue, years ago, I had a, had a school where we had an Israeli family and a Palestinian family, and we managed to have a constructive dialogue, but it was very hot. Whereas the nice thing about practicing dialogue on texts is typically people are not as uh, kind of polarized when it comes to interpreting a text. So occasionally things come up. We had a, a hot issue. I don't know if you were in that class, Raheem, but there was some issue where somebody was talking about it was immoral to eat dogs. And we had someone from an Asian culture where they did eat dogs and they felt as if it was uh, you know, culturally insulting to have a negative perception of eating dogs. So no matter what we're talking about, it's possible something hot could come up. And then we just kind of work through it and strive to have civilized, mutually respectful conversation, which I think the whole world urgently needs right now. Yeah, and this is, so this is what I love about it is that we have people from so many backgrounds. It's like, I am, you know, a person, I, I'm, I'm a religious person for sure. And I'm from Pakistan and I have my values and I have my, my opinions and I have my beliefs. And so why I might see it a thing a certain way or my why I might I even believe in something is is because of my background is because of where I come from and so it may be different based on you know other people's is um backgrounds too and so it's beautiful the fact that we've never really had a fight in the class as you know when we're here we're always talking as you know, people, and if I, let's say I disagree with a statement someone's made, or if it's something that's really against my values and I'd rather scream at them, I just mute myself and I would just pull myself together. And then I jump back into the conversation. That's just something that I've learned to do. And um, it's just, I mean, at times I have conversations outside of class. Um, it's just like three different uh, people from three different religions talking about religion Sometimes we very, like, very much disagree with each other about what the other person, like, said, but it's just like we've learned to be okay with it. And I think that's the way that we can talk about many big issues now is because we've learned how to do that. And if we have learned how to do that as teenagers with a lot of emotions, then I think so that we are definitely prepping up for being all right, being cranky adults, too, with a lot of emotions. Oh, thank you. Um, so, Robert, I always have in the back of my mind um, connecting the conversation back to the theme of your show. And, and something else that comes up to me is we've got several students, and Raheen has been among them, who want to broaden this beyond our school, and in part to validate the role of constructive dialogue for teenagers who may be in different kinds of schools. You know, a lot of dialogue on the internet is really sometimes vicious and mean and you know, quite unpleasant. There's a lot of bullying and so forth. And you know, you think people long for dialogue when it is constructive. 
And so we've actually got somebody who's working on a Discord channel that they want to open up to the public, to teenagers at some point, where the idea would be to have moderators so that the moderators could train participants from around the world on the Discord channel so they can talk about sometimes hot issues without becoming aggressive or insulting or mean. And then gradually to train teen moderators. So you have these, in principle, it's scalable. That is, in principle, you could have an arbitrarily large global community of people talking online while being uh, constructive and respectful. And then if they want to connect it to readings, then we can help them crank up their reading abilities. And then ultimately, if they wanted to write, we could help them become better writers. Um, so it's a long ways from our you know, small virtual program now to this global community. But I think the, the things we're practicing here in terms of respectful dialogue, in terms of connecting it to text to develop reading sophistication, and then ultimately writing as a product, so to speak, um, that piece could be deployed um, for the world. And students who want to have access to this without being able to come to the full school I would say that's part of my dream is for this to be globally available at essentially no cost. You know, ideally we would have anybody who wanted to participate in this community could learn to discuss ideas respectfully, read very difficult material, and then um, write extremely lucid essays or articles. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I there's, There are many, many hooks now to chime into, but I think uh, one of them that comes up for me right now is that because I, I love the the aspect that you create more consciousness among younger people through education and we talked about ego and insecurity i don't feel it is a very uh clear image that we have of the world specifically for younger people and i wonder why uh, michael politicians do they not understand this when you see a debate or they call it a debate during elections <laughs> and and but that, that there's no big debate at all so where are the moderators that understand this no I, it's sad i mean i i've spent a lot of time with middle schoolers and since raheen you're a little bit older than middle school i can be somewhat uh less than respectful towards them but a lot of times i see politicians and i think they're just like a bunch of middle school kids <laughs> you know incredible immaturity an incredible lack of respect um you know and i i think in general i'm very interested and in supportive of civil respectful dialogue wherever we can find it and i know we've all found little pockets across the internet uh, but politicians are probably the 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 least least exemplary in this respect Exactly. So, uh, so I'm very positive that this younger generation picks up on that uh, or is able to learn this uh, because, uh, yeah, I think that's most definitely needed. Um, I wanted to ask you, because you're doing so many different things or maybe in the same realm, Michael, um, you are a CEO at Radical Social Entrepreneurs for quite some time. You are also a, a member of the Board of Trustees at Social Evolution. That's a nonprofit. Do you want to share something about these specific uh, activities? Yeah. Sure. Kind of going back. Um, so years ago, it's all been almost 20 years ago, I met John Mackey, who's the founder and CEO of Whole Foods Market. 
you know, they're the leading kind of organic and natural grocery chain in the US, possibly in the world. And um, he and I both, you know, I'd been creating schools and he'd created uh, Whole Foods. And we were interested in using entrepreneurial energies to make the world a better place. And of course, the social entrepreneurship movement has grown quite a lot. Micro entrepreneurship is out there. Some tech entrepreneurs want a meaning purpose piece in there. So I've, I really have one of the best networks of purpose-driven entrepreneurs in the world. And so a lot of what we, and, and by the way, my wife is an African, she's a Senegalese entrepreneur who's out to create jobs in Senegal while also um, changing the perception of Africa in a more positive way. So I'm connected to all of these people who are using entrepreneurial initiative, initiatives to make the world a better place. And I would say I'm, I'm a great connector in that respect. Um, you know, I've had some of these people give talks at our school, but I think a lot of people believe they either have to choose between, um, you know, working and say working for a corporation in a meaningless way, or maybe working for a nonprofit and not making money, or, you know, there, there, I think a lot of people have false alternatives. And so I'm, I would say I'm part of a movement where we say, okay, suppose you do wanna have a positive impact, and suppose you are kind of creative and entrepreneurial, how can you design a project where, you know, you, you do have revenue streams, uh, you know, even a nonprofit needs revenue streams, you know, how can you bring in money while having impact? And on the other end of that, I think there's a growing global movement of consumers who care about the impact of the purchasing decisions they make. And so I'm optimistic by nature. And so when I see more people wanting more ways to do good more effectively, and then we have more consumers interested in this in some manner and more kind of entrepreneurs and businesses interested in another manner. How do we build this out? And it's an incredibly complex, I could go down a thousand rabbit holes on this, but uh, I think it's a really powerful movement. And it does give people, even adults, a sense of purpose and agency. You know, I'm sure we've all known adults who feel dead in their jobs at the age of 40 or 50 or whatever. And I think this sense of, having the power to make positive change is something that's healthy and good for everyone. So I'll give you my dream, Robert, is that we all wake up all day, every day, joyfully engaged in a flow experience to make the world a better place for others. And if we can all have fun doing good, voila, bit by bit, we'll, we'll get things done. Yay. We, we can cheer to that, right? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. For sure, definitely. Very hard, very hard. I also describe being an entrepreneur as being punched in the gut every day. So <laughs> there are a lot of hard things along the way. But again, if you're doing something difficult for the sake of purpose, you know, you, you deal with challenges and it's okay. Yeah. And there is no fun if there is no challenge. Thank you, Raheen. Way to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so true. So what came up with me uh, also was because we, we all know the sustainable development goals, right? The SDGs. Mm -hmm. uh, and you also now have, and that's really brilliant, the inner development goals. And particularly, it sort of also put a focus and a lens on the inward process. And, and that's what you are also strongly focusing on, right? And we need both. It's not only about changing systems but it's also our inner processes and our inner maturity that's so crucial. So, yeah. 
I felt like sharing this. <laughs> Absolutely true. And I had not known about the inner development goals. And I think, you know, I've, I've been involved in, you know, personal growth movements for a very long time. And, you know, in traditional philosophy, certainly had some of that. Um, but it does feel like it's becoming more mainstream. And I think, I think that's good. Again, I think that gradually, very gradually, we need to help it move more quickly. I think more people are seeking meaning and purpose and happiness and flourishing. And, you know, I, I think that we just need to kind of normalize that meaning and purpose more important than, than bling and status. And ultimately, life satisfaction is the whole goal. Beautiful, Rahim. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with what you said. I want to ask you some personal questions, Michael, that's okay. Oh. Yeah, I, I was wondering, how do you combine your life as a social entrepreneur and a writer and an educator and so on, and your current activities? How do you find and keep balance in your life? Well, it's a good question. Um, so part of it is I, I do love what I do. And so if you love what you do, it doesn't necessarily seem like work. I would say I do need to, because I tend to be very cognitive and intellectual, I do need to make an act, active effort to get outside and work and exercise and, and those sorts of things. Uh, in some ways, my natural inclination is to be working a lot. Um, because my wife is also an entrepreneur and a social entrepreneur, and she and I work closely together, I would say a lot of what we do uh, is both time together and, as it were, work. So she she gives a lot of talks. She just gave a talk in Mexico, and I went with her and um, you know kind of supported her in the talk. And we're always she and I are always talking about ideas and talking about how to get her uh, project moving faster, as well as mine. And so I would say uh, our relationship as a couple is very much based on purpose driven work together. Um, you know, and so we do, we do other things and so forth, but, uh, I would say our life and work is deeply integrated into the kind of very texture of who we are and what we do. Yeah. Wonderful. The, the other question I have for you is if you ever felt some moments of despair in your journey and if so, which ones, and how did you overcome them? Well, um, actually sort of a, an interesting approach is I find that if I'm well-fed and well-wristed, I'm pretty good. So my, <laughs> when I'm, well, really, when I'm most likely to feel despair is when I didn't get enough sleep. And so, you know, I'm kind of monomaniacal about get enough sleep. And I, I find that if I'm well-rested, then I can have the energy. So in any time I am feeling despair, it's like, okay, am I, do I have enough calories? Do I sleep enough? You know, are my bodily functions, you know, active. Maybe I do need exercise and outdoors. So, you know, this is where I would say healthy lifestyle is absolutely essential to being able to function. And I think so many people I see who are unhappy, um, a lot of it is they have these systematic lifestyle dysfunctions. Somebody sleeps five or six hours a night and then they're unhappy or, you know, they, they don't eat well and regularly. I'm like, hello, take care of your body and you know, if you take care of the vessel, then, you know, at least I, I, to some extent, I was born with an incredibly optimistic personality. So I kind of have a, maybe a genetic cheat in terms of optimism, but yeah, the only times I really feel down and out is when I'm not physically caring for myself. And then it's just like, let's take care of myself. Mm -hmm. 
And so, okay, this is the thing. I have had this, this moment quite so many times. I have emailed Michael, I have texted Michael, and he gets back so fast, like he does. And so I've had day, days when I'm like busy and whenever like Michael and I have a call, a lot of times he has a hard stop of the hour or, you know, an hour after 30. So it's just, you know, he's always on these meetings and he's working. Well, definitely about, and about stuff that he likes and he loves and, I think that's what definitely keeps him going, but it's just like, he's always so energetic and he's always like, oh yeah, fill me in. What's happening? What's new? And yeah, so I've never actually seen Michael be angry or hangry for that matter. So I would want to see such a day where Michael is not the most energetic Michael, which we always see. So yeah. Well, thank you. And of course, it's energizing, it's energizing to talk to you about you. This is the secret. See, people think it's hard, but um, if you enjoy a lot of work, it's funny, a lot of work is actually talking to people, you know? Um, this is why I think talk is actually important in school. A lot of work is talking to people. And if people are pleasant, none of us like to talk to people who are insulting or, you know, make snide remarks or who are aggressive or something. If a lot of work is talking to people and if the people are pleasant to talk to and we're pleasant, if we're mutually respectful and supportive and hopefully a little bit joyful and funny, um, Raheen is funnier than I'll ever be in my life, um, then it's fun to talk to people and we can get things done while doing things. I think a lot of the misery of the world, you know, once we're well rested and we have a sense of purpose and meaning is treating each other well. And it sounds so basic. But I think all of us are energized by interactions with positive people, and we're all drained by interactions with negative people. And I think the more we can kind of create these positive, energetic win-wins in real time, you know, then we get these upward spirals. This is, again, part of why I'm an optimist, because I, there's an immense amount of dis dysfunction, disaster, bad things going on. But I think a lot of, a lot of it is shifting from the downward spirals where everything gets worse and people try to start treating each other worse and worse and worse to an upward spiral where, you know, we do good and have fun together. We're energized by each other and all of a sudden then it becomes easy. It's no longer work. Yeah, I, I, I can see how that would work out because I, you know, it's always stuff that I'm passionate about that doesn't feel like a lot of work. Like, you know, there are moments now seeing my schedule is very messed up you know Michael and that is one of the things Michael asks me quite often because I mean a lot of times I tell Michael oh you know I'm not feeling well or that or whatever and so he always is saying are you eating well are you sleeping well and all of that so um no definitely it's when you love your work and when you are in an environment like you like you shared your advice too it's just when you have the support and when you are in an environment, it seems like, you know, sometimes it can get tiring. I mean, that's just part that I think every, every stuff that could be classified as work, but it, it would be very energizing if you have people that have the same positive energy around you and the same passion for what they're doing too. Oh, thank you. And, and actually just something I want to call attention to in particular is, I think a lot of those of us who want to do good get into a habit of telling people what they should do. You should do this. Educators are terrible about this. You should study more. You should do more work. You should do this. Or with the environment, you know, 
you should be more careful, you should recycle more, you should whatever. And if people, if our interactions with other people are all, you should, you should, you should, you should, we're not fun people. <laughs> you know, um, if people are always feeling um, told what to do, they're not enjoying time. Whereas if we're enjoyable, and then they'll go off and party, you know, or whatever, you know, they'll go off to carefree people who are just all about having fun. And so I've been very interested in the integration on the one hand of making positive work in the world, but also being lighthearted and pleasant and fun, as opposed to harshly moralizing. I think a lot of times people are alienated by harshly moralizing, whether it's in education or in terms of, you know, global, global issues. And at least when it gets down to doing things together, we need to have a space where people actively want to come back every week. They want to be there. They do feel their best. They do feel energized. And so, you know, do sometimes I wish students would do more homework? Absolutely. I wish a lot of students would do a lot of things more, but I know that it's never constructive to get on their case like that. You know, I always try to come from a place of, okay, no problem. What do you want to do long-term? I always try to get people to think about the long-term because I think if you get people to think through the long-term, then most people, not all by any means, but most people, when they think of the long-term, whether it's of their personal life or of global issues, they tend to become a little bit more responsible. And I think this sense of putting people in a warm community that's thinking about how to make things better is more effective than shouting at people and telling them why they're bad people. Yeah, wonderful. Thank, thank. You wanted to respond, right? No, I, I totally agree with that. And so I was thinking now that Michael's talking and you're asking, you know, uh, questions about Michael's life. I just thought that, yeah, that's true. Michael's never, never said, though he's my mentor, he's never said you should do that. He's like, I'd suggest. And that's the same so yeah, I've never really heard Michael say like should when like like in a sense of commanding, you should sleep more. I'd suggest you sleep more. So yeah, I'm noticing little things that Michael does now. I've worked with teenagers for a long time, with teenagers in particular, telling them you should do something, losing strategy. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think, uh, guys, uh, we're sort of nearing the end phase of the interview. And uh, Michael, I want to ask you, how can we support your activities or projects? Well, thank you. Um, certainly call attention to the Socratic experience as a program and stay tuned because we do want to, you can follow me on LinkedIn or Facebook. Um, I'm also active on Twitter. And gradually we do want to, we're not quite ready to provide a place for people to participate for free in the community. But we are working with Raheen and several other students to develop spaces where people could, especially young people could come in and learn through dialogue for free. So if people are interested, they should track us on social media. And then when we have something ready where young people could participate in these communities, then I'm sure Raheen and I will both announce it and they can uh, then join these communities and hopefully get a sense of meaning and purpose while they learn how to make the world a better place. Awesome. Thank you for that offer. Appreciate it very much. I have two questions left. My two questions left are, um, is there anyone in particular you would like us to interview on Future Now Radio? 
That's a really good question. Um, you know, actually, since this piece resonated for you, I've got a friend named Charlie Hone who wrote a book on play. And he, he was actually a super successful digital marketer. And he became kind of depressed and worn out. And now he actually teaches the importance of play, uh, even to corporations and so, so forth. And so he does kind of a grown up version of the importance of being lighthearted and play. And he's really thoughtful and sophisticated about it. So I think Charlie Hone would be great. I'm happy to do an introduction. Amazing. Thank you so much. And the last question for me is, do you have a call to action or anything in that direction? I would say my principal call to action is to learn to do good joyfully and to create communities where people can do good joyfully and support those of us who are doing so. So yeah, do good, have fun and join the communities that are doing so. Thanks, Rahi. So uh, the next time I would want to suggest um, Matt Barnes. He's a friend of mine and he is he's very nice. He works with parents and he works with education and he's a very passionate speaker. So I would love that. And my call to action, guys, please explore. Explore the world. It is a beautiful place and just find something that you love to do. Awesome. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Robert, for having me. Thank you, Raheem. Um, I look forward to seeing you both, and uh, I look forward to listening to the episode. Wonderful. And thank you, Raheem Fatima, for your lovely co-hosting. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being on with you, too. And thank you for listening to this podcast. We talked to Michael Strong, author founder of the Socratic Experience, co-founder of Conscious Capitalism, and CEO of Radical Social Entrepreneurs.